Here, real fast, are the questions that we tackled. How do I know God exists? Even if I know God exists, how do I know which God is the right God to follow? What makes Christianity unique? Why should I choose to investigate Christianity? And for each of these last week, we had biblical references that we covered include what are the basic tenets of Christianity for people who don't even know what the basic claims of Christ are. How do I become a Christian? What if I continue to sin? Is salvation the end goal of the Christian life? Very good discussion that we had on last week. You know, is salvation it, or are there other things in the Christian life that are important beyond salvation? And finally, what is the meaning of life as a Christian? What is the meaning of life if you are a Christian? So I felt like we had a good time covering those. But now I want to move to some of the objections that you're going to encounter when you talk to people, especially, and, I, and I'll say especially in an American context. And what I want you guys to do is look at the question for a moment, and if you feel like you want to weigh on this, that's what I want you to do, because I want to pretend that this question is posed right back to you. Let's go to the first one and see what you guys think. But aren't Christians hypocrites? Probably one of the top objections you'll find when you're trying to tell somebody about Christ. But isn't the church full of hypocrites? Or aren't Christians just hypocrites? I mean, some of you I can tell just, I mean, right off the bat would say, yes, they are. A lot of Christians are hypocrites. Okay, my answer to that would be um, you don't look at other people um, because people are going to let you down no matter what in life. And, um, and your walk with Christ is your walk with Christ, and he's never going to let you down. And he's always going to be there for you. And he said he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And that's the relationship that you need to have is between God and you. And not look at other people around you and put your faith in people, because people are going to mess up. People are going to screw up. They are hypocrites um, at one point or another, because that's why we need grace. We need a Savior, because... You, you don't want to look to a human. You don't want to look to humanity who fell, but you want to look to God, you know, who hasn't fallen, who's there. And that's what you need to put your faith into. And that's why you need to believe instead of looking at people. Okay. There's two principles I want you to pick up on this one in this question. First of all, first principle is this. We are judged by our actions and our witness to other people, like I said last week, is so much more often what people see in us than what we say. Before you ever get a chance to walk up to somebody and talk to them, they've already probably witnessed to how you act in many circumstances, and that already has spelled out to them what a Christian is long before you actually approach them to talk to them about the gospel. This is especially true of people that are close in your life. You know, People who will say, like, wow, that's really interesting that you tell me about sin and salvation because I've seen you like this. Or in the more general sense, people will just say, oh, I, there's so many hypocrites in the church, and that's their objection. So I think what Ryan said is dead on. Second principle is this. From a logic standpoint, you can never judge the truth of something by how closely adherents follow it. All right? What that really means is you can never say that Christ is true or not true, or God is there or he's not there, just because people in the church mess up. What does it mean that there's hypocrites in the church? Does that mean that God doesn't exist? What if God exists and every single person in the church is screwed up? Which is exactly what the Bible says. So the Bible actually predicts correctly what's going on in the church, that all of us are hypocrites. All of us are fallen. All of us are sinners. What you need to encourage someone is to say, don't ever judge Christianity 
by how closely people follow it. Judge it by whether it's true or not. I like this one in our modern day and age. Aren't all Christians conservative and backwards? Common view? Held among many? I'm a socialist, so I can't be conservative. Okay. <laughs> that is the answer. I like the answer. I mean, even though you're kind of half jesting, I'm a socialist, so I can't be conservative. Let's take a vote in here. How many people consider themselves conservative in this room? Conservative in terms of... Uh, let's just say, like, political and social views. Yeah, maybe half. Why is there a view that Christians are conservative and backwards? Anybody want to volunteer that? Anything? Why? Because our names get... Our Christianity is attached to political. Bush. Like, the main... Freaking Bush. Well, let me ask you, are you comfortable having Christianity Mm -mm. attached to Bush? Mm -mm. No? I mean, isn't he God's chosen man? Mm -mm. You don't think he is? No, I don't. Okay. And by the way, that would surprise a lot of people. That probably half the people in this room don't think he is. That would be surprising to some people because they think, like you said, that Christians have one mind. And that they support like this mindless thought of we have to support the most conservative person. Okay. Okay, somebody make a case for me, if you could, that if Jesus was on earth, he'd be a Republican. He's against abortion. Yeah. Okay, he's against abortion, that's one, so that yeah. automatically makes him Republican, right? The moral majority is kind of like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They were ripe in so many points, but they, they missed the bigger picture. They're like, yes, they, you know, we're not supposed to be prostitutes, we're not supposed to exploit people with taxes or anything like that, but they didn't have a heart for the people and it seems that's one of the things that gets lost in the moral majority in our we're we're concerned with our sexual morality and it's easy to overlook things like uh, taking care of the poor and that I think that's where Jesus would be the biggest critique of the moral majority, and, and the Republican-type uh, Christianity. Okay. Good. Somebody then give me a case so that Jesus would want to be a... Would, socialist. Well, <laughs> either a socialist or a Democrat. I want Vicky to do it. If you look at our um, medical and also education, the social issues, right? he would offer them to all people instead of putting certain brackets or certain restrictions on who could get what and who couldn't get what. I think there's a perception among most non-Christians when they look at Christianity that what they're looking at, they're thinking that whatever they see in the mainstream you call the moral majority must represent Christian thought. It's convenient to lump all Christians that way, but if you look at Jesus' life, I'd have to argue that he spent more of his life concerned with social issues than he did with almost anything else. He was concerned about healing, teaching. We all know the teachers' union is always democratic. He was concerned about the welfare of people. He spent his time with the poor and the sick and the needy. Okay? And he said those were the people who needed him most. Now, I'm not going to say that if Jesus was on earth, he'd be a democrat, because I think he would say far from it. Even though I have the social policies that they've embraced... I also believe in a strong moral line. But like Ben alluded to, the moral majority seems to have become so pharisaical in their approach to preaching morality that they forgot what was underneath it in a way. We've also become a weird 
group as Christians, if you stick with the moral majority line, you know, a group that hates abortion but favors the death penalty, and at the same time is out there like preaching pro-guns, which I don't know what has anything to do with the Bible at all. Now look at the word backwards for a second. Where does that come from? Why, does, why do non-Christians characterize Christians as backwards? That's separate from conservative. Yeah. We, we stand up and say we're going against the worldly flow. That's our, I mean, that's a motto that Christians stand with is let's find what the world does and do just the opposite. Okay, let me ask you this, though. Take a Buddhist monk who takes a vow of asceticism and they're going to they're gonna just live a very simple life. I don't see the world knocking them down and saying, look at that guy, he's backwards. They kind of respect that, right? I mean, you go study under some guru, Buddhist guy, like Richard Gere, any of those people who go do that stuff, and then they come back, they're all like so much more enlightened. And no one says, what are you, backwards? Um, I think it's more backwards because we stick to some of the the moral things that uh, we have, some of the laws and rules that we use, instead of being progressive in terms of being uh, tolerant to other people, as, uh, you know, uh, gays in the church and stuff like that, we want to stick to, you know, what the Bible says as opposed to what society says. And society is moving forwards in that terms, and we're just staying backwards. And I think that's what's really uh, causing us, yeah, even though I think it's digressive. I think a lot of Christians are conservative and backwards, honestly. Like, I think a lot of them, you know, do judge, and I think a lot of them do that kind of stuff, and I think a lot of them are hypocrites, and that's just the way that it is. You know, I feel like the Lord's going to search out their heart eventually, and, um, you know, I think that that's what the Lord cares about the most is the heart. And, um, you know, I think until we start learning we, until we start learning how to love how Jesus loved, then we'll never get it right because Jesus hung out with the tax collectors. He's hung out with, you know, like you said, the people that were poor, the people that were you know, in the street that needed clothes. And, um, and that's who he hung out with. That's who he associated himself with. You know, we as Christians are supposed to live a lifestyle as um, Christians as Christ-like. So live a lifestyle like Jesus Christ. And I think if you look at Jesus when he was on this earth, he caused a lot of turmoil. He caused a lot of things that people were like, oh, isn't he backwards? Isn't, he, isn't his words mixed up? You know, he says he's the Christ. And all these different things. And so if it's going to happen, then it's going to happen to us. And that's kind of how... Where the Lord says, hey, you know what, um, you know, what servant is greater than his master? You know, he says that, you know, you guys will be persecuted. You guys will, you know, um, have to defend. And that's kind of what it's about. And, and that's what I think. Looking at the church today, you guys as Christians, looking at the church today as a whole, not your local church, but the whole thing. Do you think it's fair that sometimes it's called backwards? Sometimes? You know, I think that one of the things we have to recognize as Christians is there seems to be this overwhelming need to join a herd mentality that sometimes makes us look really backwards. Like, it's almost like the minute you become a Christian, you have to speak a little differently. You adopt words that are, like, really weird to normal people. You take on, like, a whole new, like, you know, persona or aura or whatever. I remember that when I went to an event with with my wife, and it was afterwards, like, the woman said, turned to us and said, wasn't that just the most beautiful thing ever? And my wife says, that just blessed my socks off. And I turned around, I didn't know who I was married to for a moment. I was like, what the heck just came out of your mouth? Like, we don't talk like that, do we? She's like, wasn't that what you're supposed to say in a church? Like, there's that mentality we have. Because she grew up in some weird redneck church or whatever. That you say weird things like that, and then we walk around, it's almost cult-like. Like, what does it mean to have your 
socks blessed off anyway. I don't even understand that. But even if I did understand it, it doesn't make any sense. Okay? We look kind of weird sometimes when we do things. We tend to just come around causes sometimes without even thinking about them sometimes. And that's maybe why we all get swept up in one... You know, everybody thinks we're like in one political group or something without really realizing that there's diversity of opinions and views just in this group right here, let alone the whole church. Don't Christians deny science and physical realities? I mean, if you're talking to somebody who's really struggling with the claims of Christianity, and let's say you've walked them through the whole gospel message, and they're sitting there thinking, you know, what you're saying really sounds good to me. I like what I'm hearing, and I want it to be true. I want what you're saying to be true. So I'd like to know that you're not some whack job. Because it sounds good to me. I'm on the verge of thinking that this might be something I want to investigate. Here's an objection I want you to answer for me. Don't Christians deny science and all physical realities? I mean, aren't you guys weird when it comes to that? Because if you deny that, then maybe you aren't so on your rocker. Maybe I should be thinking you're off your rocker, and I don't know about this whole Christ thing. Anyone want to take that on? Eric? The whole walking on water thing, you know, that kind of defies science because I tried doing it. Let me, let me comment on that. I think that if you talk to a non-Christian, that they would more likely believe in miracles than a wholesale denial of everything else that's physical in the universe. If you say to somebody, Christ rose from the dead, that was a miracle. Christ walked on water, that was a miracle. Christ healed a blind man, that was a miracle. A person would say, wow, that's amazing, because if there really is a God, he can bend the physical laws of the universe. Why wouldn't that be true? What non-Christians have more of a problem with, I think, is when you then say, and everything else from that, that ever happened with regards to science, everything has been a miracle from the beginning. That nothing that science has ever discovered has been true. It's all miraculous. It's all not what you think it is. We covered this for 12 to 14 weeks. We're not going to rehash it in one night. But here is the thing to think about. Yes, there is a great part of the church to a lot of people that troubles them because they do appear like they are denying science. Okay? And even though both sides of the young earth and old earth debate that we covered look very carefully at science and both of them say, no, we believe in science, there's just parts of the church that have very disturbing things. The only thing I would say to you is I don't think you can say to somebody, hey, I got 14 CDs on this, you want to listen to them? I think each of you has to come up with your own answer for this because this is probably among the top five objections to Christianity. And you're going to have to find a way to very delicately say, yes, there are certain Christians who believe in creation, for example, to an extent that there is no physical science whatsoever. But there are many other Christians who believe that science and the Bible are very congruent. You can't say, to the, you know, you can say, hey, I can give you five books if you want to read them. It's a very large topic. But you have to dismantle the objection before you even get them to think about the topic. You have to just say, look, there are people who believe so and so in this. And they may say to you, like, well, do you believe in evolution? You know, do you believe in this, in the sixth literal day creation? You have to have answers for these things. Your answers, not mine. Because they're going to ask you. And you may have to say, you know what? No, I don't believe in evolution, but not because I'm a Christian. And you have to be able to carefully use that thread. You know, where we discover that even the top evolutionists now believe that 
all of the beginning of life came from outer space in a super alien race. You know, we're not making this up. They are. Forget, forget creation for a moment. If someone's asking you about like science and religion, just ask them if you really are. Well, you have to be pretty adept to do this, but ask them what they think about evolution. I mean, just say, look, forget what creation says. Let's just talk about what evolution says. Do you know what it says? Most people actually don't know what it says. But if you really get down with it and work through it and show them what the current thinking on evolution is by the top guys, I mean, we have the quotations. They're all there from the last couple of large conventions that these people have had where they're realizing they have a massive problem on their hands. They cannot figure out where life began. And they can't figure out where the, the, how to do the math. The earth and the universe is just not old enough, no matter how many billions of years you make it, for evolution to have worked out this fast. That's one way to lead somebody into a conversation that has nothing to do with starting off with hitting them with creation. Look, the, the perception is today in America that all Christians want to do is teach a six literal day creation story in school and tell kids fairy tales. That's how people look at Christianity. And that's unfortunate because it has nothing to do with what we're really saying and it doesn't really focus on the right part of the debate. The right part of the debate is forget what we think. What do you think? Ask that person what they think. Can they justify their own theories? Aren't Christians judgmental? <laughs> that should be a quick answer. I thought Christians weren't supposed to judge. Why are Christians so judgmental? Well, let me ask you this first of all. Do you think Christians are more judgmental than other people? Okay. So I think most people agree that we are. It's probably one of our problems. Anybody care to give me a reason why we th- we're more judgmental? Yeah, I just, I, I can see why they would say Christians are judgmental because, you know, we believe in our way and we believe it's the one way, you know, and Jesus is the, the only way to heaven, you know, like it says in the Bible. And um, I've known other people on the other side that have looked at Christians and say, you know, you're crazy for believing what you believe. How could you be so? What you're hitting on is a question that really goes to the heart of Christianity about how can Jesus claim he's the only way? Does that make us judgmental, first of all? Does it make us backwards? And then how do we deal with judging when you have an absolute truth? And I guess here's the way to state this. We do have a belief in the church that there is one truth, that God is the author of that truth, and he tells us what is right and what is wrong. That his perfection cannot lie, and he knows what's right and wrong, and he tells it to us. If you have a neighbor and they're, and they're living with their girlfriend or boyfriend, we as Christians say, God says that's wrong. In the world, they say, hey man, that's just backwards. We're free to do whatever we want. We're not hurting anybody. That's their standard for right and wrong. The world's standard for right and wrong is, am I hurting anybody? Is it any of your business? Leave me alone. So they have children. They're not married. They break up. There's, you know, it doesn't matter. Because it's their life, it's not yours, leave me alone. In the church, we have a standard for right or wrong. God gives it to us. Here's where we go wrong. We then use that standard and we beat somebody over the head with it like a club. Instead of approaching people in love and approaching people in a way that touches them or reaches out or tries to show them the truth in other ways, we tend to be judgmental and say... That's just wrong. You're wrong. Of course, we have our own sin in our own life that violates the holy truth of God, and we don't really bring that up. 
In the church, we do the same thing. In the church, there could be no bigger taboo than doing some sort of sexual sin. But whatever it is your thing is, we beat each other over the head with these clubs of judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that you cannot judge in righteous judgment. You have to be able to say, yes, that's wrong. Yes, that's right. Otherwise, we'd be like the rest of the world saying, eh, do whatever you want as long as it doesn't bother anybody. Or as long as nobody knows about it. Now, there is a standard for right or wrong. It's just how we act when we find out and how we approach people who are wrong that makes all the difference. Look at the way Jesus approached people who are wrong. How many times did Jesus approach the person who was living in sin, even sexual sin, and speak to them quietly and gently and bring them to an understanding of what truth is and leave them with, just go and sin no more. No condemnation, even though he had every right to judge. But then there's one deeper layer, and that is there's going to be people who just... And they'll look at us and say, you are so arrogant, you are so wrong, you are so judgmental to say that your God is the only way. I think I hope you guys acknowledge and can understand that if Christianity is true, we have to stick by it. If it's true, there can't be another way. There can't be multiple ways. There has to be one way. We already talked about that last week. We talked about why there can't be multiple ways. There's only one way. So it's either Christianity or it's something else. So when people ask you or they say, hey, you guys are crazy to believe that you guys are the only way. It's like, okay, show me a better way. When you show me a better way, then I'll accept your God. I mean, you've got to make a decision. Sitting on the fence is not a decision. Sitting on the fence is being able to throw shots at every single person, but you're not making a choice. I mean, Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we choose the Lord. You guys want somebody else? Choose. Most people in America today have the luxury of sitting on the fence because no one's calling on them on it. No one, not, especially not Christians, has the ability or the intellect, I don't know what it is, to just say, well, show me a better way. What's your way? Who do you believe in? And until somebody shows me a better way, then I guess there's got to be, here it is, here's the truth. Jesus said, I am the only way. Are we arrogant to believe that? I don't know. That's like saying that somebody's arrogant because they believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And somebody's like, well, must, there could be another answer. It's like, really? Well, <laughs> when you show it to me, I might believe you. But until then, I'm going to believe 2 plus 2 equals 4. Call me arrogant, but I believe it's true. There are people who genuinely believe that, well, let's put it this way. They genuinely are sorrowful for people's fate, their eternal fate. And they're worried that people are going to go to hell. And they feel like they've got to get to people no matter what. And sometimes they do it in ways that I don't approve of or I don't like personally. But how do I know that the Lord didn't call them to do that? You know, Sometimes they do some crazy, crazy things. And you, they, it almost looks careless, reckless. And you think it's just going to be a, just a disaster. But you know, the Lord can even work through disaster sometimes. Because that person earnestly is doing it for the right reason. Some Christians are so afraid of being wrong that they've got to convince the world they're right, uh, which is a separate problem that I think some Christians have. Um, some Christians have gotten so caught up in their Christianity they wear it like a badge of pride. And I think you could never love anybody through pride. I mean, I listened to a man tell me how he was working on a, on a door-to-door ministry targeting Muslims. I mean, within three minutes, like I felt like I was going to throw up. 
I mean, I just couldn't believe this guy was actually out in the community representing Christianity and doing what he was doing. So as, as insensitive, if you're going to send like the white man, this guy was the poster boy for the white man, into the Muslim community, he'd say, and I walk up to their door and I just tell them, you know, your prophet, he was a pedophile. And, he, and I'm like, this is the way he begins talking to these people. I thought, you know, just the way that this guy approaches people and calls, like his opening words are, you know, your prophet that you worship, he was a pedophile, he was illiterate, he was a uh, devil worshiper. You know, the funny thing is he concluded, he goes, and then every one of them looks at me and goes, thank you for telling me this, I'm going to believe in the Lord now. And he actually would walk away thinking they converted. And I thought, I think maybe half of them were just trying to slam the door to get you out of there as fast as possible. The other half are like dialing 911 or something. I don't think that you could ever do that and not do great damage in God's kingdom for that, you know? I mean, those people may be turned off forever with, that's their image of the Christian that came knocking on their door. That's the person that they encountered when they said, who's in my local, who's in that local church around the corner? I wonder what's in there. They just met that guy. They'll probably never step foot in there. I, f- I think what's funny is that, uh, you know, we're talking about judgmental and... Um the only people that the Lord really called, you know, your brood of vipers and your hypocrites were the holy people, were the Pharisees, not the people that were sinning. Just kind of interesting. Next objection. Get through these real fast. Aren't Christians insensitive when they attempt to convert others? Not do they do it insensitively, because we know, we just gave examples of people who do it insensitively. But are Christians being insensitive when they try to tell somebody else of another religion about their own faith? And this one, I think you have to really look at the heart of the person. Because if it's really true that Jesus' words are, if you don't know about me and you don't receive my blood, you really have a hell of an eternity waiting for you, then I think it's almost compassionate to try to save as many people as you can. In fact, Jesus' last commandment was, go therefore and preach my gospel and make disciples and baptize them. Closing words. But the way that we can do it can be insensitive. But I think doing it can never be insensitive if you look at someone's true motivations. I mean, people would ask me this when I would travel on mission trips to Russia. They would say, like, is the word that you bring something that's selfish? Do you have, you know, why are you all this way over here? And we would just say, look, do you think I would travel all this way and come all this way if it wasn't for your good? Like, why would I come here? Like, I'm happy in my country. I'd rather have a vacation. I got everything I need. Why would I travel all this way? You know, if this wasn't the most important and urgent thing in the world, that you hear this. Those are the kind of things you need to be thinking about, that a person is sitting there thinking, are you being insensitive? Are you being politically incorrect? And that tends to silence us as Christians, because it's easy for someone to say, hey, you're a bigot. You're insensitive. You're being politically incorrect. You're crossing the line. Keep it to yourself. You know, you believe that? Fine, that's good for you. Don't, don't impose that on other people. Sounds good. When someone heard that I was going to Russia to preach the gospel, they go, wow, you would travel all that way to impose your beliefs on other people? I love the way they stated that. You would travel all that way to impose your beliefs on other people. Man, you really must have a big ego, was what they were saying. That you would travel all that way to impose your beliefs on them. Absolutely not. I would travel all that way only because we care about those people. But does the person who's asking the question see that in you? Or are you just one of those robots just trying to dish out the gospel message? 
Doesn't the Bible contradict itself? Well, you guys will find out soon because we're going to spend six weeks going through all the arguments about biblical inerrancy and all that stuff. But that's a big question on people's mind because they'll look at it this way. Does the Bible contradict itself? Why do they care? Why would anybody care if the Bible contradicted itself? Yeah, because you could write it off if you found a contradiction. You know? Aha! I knew I didn't need to believe in this book. One last thing on the guilt list of my life. Don't Christians disagree among themselves about what is true? You guys want to talk about the greatest damage we do? We don't have to fight the world. You know, we're fighting each other. We're wringing Christianity out of the church. People are genuinely going to look at this question and a few afterwards and say, wait a minute, how do I know what to believe if you guys disagree about what you believe? The answer for us is pretty simple. We may disagree about some doctrinal issues, but they're not fundamental to our faith. You know people disagree about whether you should be baptized as a kid or an adult. People disagree about you know, whether the Virgin Mary should be venerated or not. There's all sorts of things within Christianity that people disagree about. But the fundamentals remain true. The person who's asking this question is trying to find a way to stay out of Christianity entirely. Why don't you say, look, why don't you agree to the fundamentals, get in, and you can join the debate. <laughs> if you care so much about who's right or wrong. But it doesn't invalidate the truth of the fundamentals of Christianity. The lesson for us, though, as Christians is, you know what? We do spend so much time making it hard for other people to believe in Christ because we're fighting so hard over stupid things. I mean, you guys know we went through all the stuff about the young earth older, so I won't rehash that, but just even the one about baptism is so silly to me. The fact that we have Christians who believe that if you're baptized in anything but an adult, you can't go to heaven. And then you have other Christians who believe that you have to be baptized as a baby or forget it. And some churches won't even let you be a member of their church if you chose the wrong one and you didn't even know because your parents did it to you. And some churches that won't accept the other. I mean, is this, is this the most ridiculous thing ever? But yet if you go to one of those churches and they turn you away because of some baptismal difference, I mean, you'd probably never come back to Christianity. You'd be like, forget that. We do it to ourselves. I don't know why that mentality is so strong in us to have to believe that our church is the only one that knows what it's doing and everybody else is wrong. I mean, we've seen splits of denominations over communion, you know, just how it's served. You know, in some churches, unless you're an elder, you can't touch the communion elements to serve them. I mean, it would be scandalous for me to walk into a Presbyterian church and serve communion. When we used to have retreats up at the mountain, we had to order an elder or a pastor to come all the way up the mountain to serve communion because I could not serve communion because I wasn't ordained. Just crazy. Why are there so many denominations? Well, I think we just answered it. Because every single time we as Christians disagree, we decide to split. Now, that might not be the best answer to give to somebody who's searching as a non-Christian. But here's the historical reason. First of all, most of our denominations come from historical perspectives in America. Methodists came from England. Presbyterians came from Scotland. The, the Reformed who became the Congregations came from Holland. I mean, there's all sorts of countries that brought their religions to America and they remained separate. All right? So the reason that we have all these different denominations to begin with, like Lutherans who came from Germany, is the immigrants came and brought their kind of flavor of religion. But that doesn't explain why we split into a billion more after we got here. And that is exactly what I just said, because we take something that's not foundational to the faith and we make it foundational. I don't think young earth or old earth is foundational to the faith, but we make it that way. 
We won't associate with someone else who believes differently than us, so we have to form a different denomination. When non-Christians throw this objective up, what they're really trying to say is like, well, you guys are also screwed up. You can't even agree. How do I know you're telling me the truth? What if the next guy over there says, well, you know what? Invite them to go over to meet the next guy and see if they don't at least agree on the foundational elements. Bring people down to the simplicity and remind people that the way Christians practice Christianity has nothing to do with whether Christ is King and Lord. We're a screwed up people trying to follow a perfect king. Don't look at our example. Just keep your eyes on the king. Next slide. How can I know that the Bible's accurate? Some people think the Bible's been copied so many times that it doesn't even, doesn't even have the same words in it anymore. Easy enough, you can invite them to go look at any historian who's a non-Christian. They'll tell you that the Bible's the most accurately copied book in the world. That if you take a piece or a piece of parchment that's been found from like 100 AD and you match it to the book of John today, it's like virtually identical. Vicki? So there are discrepancies such as homosexuality um, when in Hebrew it's really talking about sodomy. Is that just because our words in English have changed to a different meaning or is it in translation? Yeah, exactly. It's in translation. Because one of the things that we have to be careful of when you're dealing with someone who's asking a question about the inerrancy of the Bible is there's three different things we're talking about. One is, did God communicate those words? You know, there's the inspiration portion. And we believe, of course, he did. You know, through men who wrote them down through their own kind of perspectives. Number two is, then was the Bible copied correctly? Just the actual literal words all the way down through the years so that a Bible in Hebrew in 2006 is identical to one that was like 4,000, whatever it was, or 3,000 or 2,000, whoever was penning that book or that scroll. And then you have the last issue which you raise, which is the limitations of our language. Like when we choose words and we put them in there, what does it mean if later on, like for example, we think, is that word the best word that we could have used for that translation? Because we are translating from another language. And as we start to understand the context better, you'll see that other translations think, you know what, I think there's a better word for that one. We looked at that a couple weeks ago and we looked at the word like, we were looking at the word persecution and trials and tribulation and those kind of words and we were trying to understand that sometimes when even the words say, do not lead us into temptation, it wasn't really just temptation to sin. Those words also had another meaning like, do not lead us into trials that might test us. That has a whole different meaning in someone's mind, like, do not lead me into a place of testing, as opposed to do not lead me into temptation to sin. And even though both meanings are implied and both meanings are proper, our language is limited. It doesn't, you know, unless you wrote them, you know, unless you started retranslating the Bible to have both phrases in there, you know, you capture just one of the meanings. So, yeah, there's the problem of interpretation. Here's the thing. A lot of people will say, like, and I think it's probably either the next slide or somewhere up here, like, isn't it all just subject to interpretation anyways? Like, isn't everything in the Bible just subject to interpretation? And that's probably one of the highest objections to Christianity is, well, wait a minute, okay, even if the book is copied accurately, even if it came down the right way, isn't it all just subject to interpretation? Isn't it go back to denomination? Because denomination interpret the Bible different ways. But that only strengthens the non-Christian's argument. They're like, see, there's all these competing denominations, they all interpret it different ways, so... I don't even know if I should listen to you. I mean, you, you, you probably either from the wrong denomination or whatever you said is contradicted by somebody else. So how do I know it's true? 
I think the better way to attack this one with people is just to say, once again, the basics are not subject to interpretation. Like, when Jesus spoke about salvation, he gave parables, but the meaning was pretty clear. Or when he said, I am the way. Right. There's nothing subject to interpretation about I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. There's nothing subject to interpretation about God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So you can have like figurative language, you can have parables, you can have examples, metaphors, allegories, you can call it whatever you want. But when Jesus says, like, when they ask him at the trial, are you God, are you the Son of Christ? He says, I am. There's nothing subject to interpretation about that. The real issue for me, though, is that you guys not just sit here and absorb information that we go through week after week, but at least have the ability to engage with somebody else when they ask you and have these answers in your mind, okay? People throw out these objections that we... They throw out dumb objections that are not even logical, and we just kind of like look at them with the Christian dial tone, just go, ah, and can't respond. And we have to go beyond that. If, if nothing else you guys ever get out of this group, please at least get beyond the Christian dial tone. I promised George Haraxon I would read this book called When Bad Christians Happen to Good People. <laughs> And I think it really would speak to a lot of what we talked about tonight, because here's the bottom line. Let's just close with this. I'm fully aware that logical arguments are not going to win people into the kingdom of Christ. So I'm going to repeat that, because a lot of people, you probably don't believe I really believe that. Logical arguments are not going to win people into the kingdom of Christ. But what really galls me the most is when non-Christians and Christians throw up logical arguments that are so easily diffused and we as Christians don't have the basic tools to do it. That's number one. Number two is if you ask somebody why they did become a Christian, they're likely to cite another Christian. And if you're likely to ask non-Christians why they don't want to become Christians, I bet you they're likely to cite some Christians. What that means to me is that the way that we live our life and the way that we love other people and the way that we are with them is going to make all the difference. If you're throwing up these objections that are on the screen, you're really wrestling to stay away from Christ. You're throwing down everything you can think of to invalidate Him because you don't want to be like the person that you see as a Christian. Think about it. Someone is telling you this is the key to salvation and eternal bliss And you're thinking, I don't want to believe it because I don't want to be like that person over there who's a Christian. I don't want to be like that. If that's what it means to be a Christian, then forget Christianity. I think we are stumbling blocks to people entering the kingdom a lot of times. So I hope that we have an answer. Because it's better than the Christian dial tone. We need to have an answer because people do want to know. But after we're done giving them the answer... The thing that's going to really convince them is just looking at us and saying, do I want to be like that person and have what they have? Or am I happy where I am? All right, let's close in prayer and then do one more. Lord, sometimes I think in heaven you're laughing at the way that we try to dissect and study and analyze the basic gospel message that you gave. 
I think of the fact that thousands of people would run across hillsides to hear you speak, and I know it wasn't because you were giving logical arguments. Something, Lord, in your voice and something in the message you had gave so much hope. It was so exciting. It was so refreshing. It gave people a chance who had no chance. And I think, Lord, that's why you were mobbed everywhere you went. So, Lord, I apologize in advance just for the fact that we take these topics sometimes and dissect them down into into almost classroom-type subjects. But I feel we just need to know them enough, Lord, because people are going to be asking. And then I hope that we at least pick up something tonight that we can use as an answer. Lord, in the end, every person here is a witness for you, whether they know it or not. Whether they want to be or not, they are a witness for you. People are watching and people form all of their opinions well in advance of the time we ever open our mouths. I pray that our witness be positive so at least we have an open door. I pray that we're not having to constantly overcome all the negative things that people believe about Christians. I pray that we ourselves would be something attractive to people, not just kind of a hard-line, judgmental, conservative, backwards-type person, but somebody who people genuinely want to get to know and understand and follow and ask for the hope that is in us. Lord, I know this group is about giving a reason for the hope, but if we are bad witnesses, no one will ever even ask. And I pray that we, from the outside, can become so attractive that people will want to ask And secondly, Lord, that something we study here each Sunday night will give us a reason to give back. Pray these things in your name. Amen.